Looks like Bruh Fox and Bruh Bear are causing some kind of commotion downstream. Please stay in your boats while we take care of things. Your visit to Splash Mountain will continue in just a bit. Everybody's got a laughing place, a laughing place to go, go, go. Take a frown, turn it upside down, and you'll find us we know. So Br'er Rabbit's looking for a little adventure, eh? Well now, Br'er Rabbit, maybe I'll just have to roast ya. Yes, sir, Br'er Fox. You go right ahead and roast me. But whatever you do, please don't fling me in that dry patch. <laughs> you fellas could use a good laugh. Let's go down to my laughing place. W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 305 for the week of December 16th, 2012. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic to wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, audio tours, and more, and you can find everything over at wdwradio.com. So this week, we're going to connect the dots a little bit and talk about one of Walt Disney World's most popular attractions, the story that serves as the inspiration for it, and a look at its history, significance, and controversy. Jim Corcus joins me as we discuss Disney's 1946 animated and live-action film Song of the South and its connection to Splash Mountain. We'll talk about the attraction and the film, including its connection to Walt, the production, the debate, the future, and Jim's new book, Who's Afraid of Song of the South? It's a fascinating look at the film that many people haven't seen, yet features characters and songs that delight people in the Disney parks so many years after its initial release. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll then have some announcements at the end of the show, including information about the new free WDW Radio app for iPhone, iPad, Androids, and Windows mobile devices. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. It happened on one of them zippity-doo-dah days. Now that's the kind of day when you can't open your mouth Without a song, jump right out of it. Zippity-doo-dah, My, oh my, what a wonderful day. So many of Walt Disney World's incredible attractions are based not just on wonderful stories, but tales that we're familiar with from Disney animated and live-action movies, from Dumbo to Peter Pan to Beauty and the Beast and countless others, they've inspired the attractions that let us be an active participant in experiencing. And some of the stories, though, maybe a little bit less familiar to some people, although the attraction remains one of the most popular in all the Disney parks. And one such attraction that I'm referring to is Splash Mountain in Frontierland, Based on characters from Disney's 1946 film, Song of the South, because the film has never been released in the U.S., many people don't know about the direct connection to the characters and the story from that film. 
So today, we're going to connect Song of the South to Splash Mountain and another location here in Walt Disney World. And I'm joined today by Jim Corcus, who just happens to have a new book out called Who's Afraid of Song of the South, which has just been released. Jim, good to see you again. Always a joy to see you, Lou. It's, it's been too long, but but I know you live a hectic lifestyle, <laughs> Disney cruises and media events and all of that. I, I'm still surprised you can do a podcast each and every week. Well, it's it's um, it's a tough job, but somebody has to listen. It's a lot better than being a lawyer. What can I <laughs> Just about anything is, uh, Lou. But, but 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 this is great, and and, and uh, of course we're not at uh, uh, Splash Mountain today. We're at uh, uh, Port Orleans French Quarter, and. Um, uh, we've just been having a, a wonderful uh, uh, time here, uh, and uh, we even just discovered that uh, uh, Louis Armstrong sings in the men's bathroom. <laughs> that, 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 that is the which is where we were going to record the show from, but again, it would have been a little bit more awkward than it is. Well, you, you, you know, I, I think uh, for a lot of um, uh, Disney fans and people who visit Walt Disney World, uh, they really don't fully appreciate that the Disney resorts. They're really not hotels. They really are resorts. They're like uh, mini theme parks with with the, the wonderful uh, theming and uh, all those uh, uh, little elements. And uh, so I'm glad we can talk uh, uh, about the book today, uh, Who's Afraid of the, the Song of the South, which, uh, again, t- uh, took place in uh, in the South. And, and uh, of course, the tales also uh, being told uh, uh, in uh, New Orleans. In fact, in, in the outside square where we are right now, in the mid-90s, they used to have uh, meet and greets with uh, costumed uh, Br'er Bear and uh, Br'er Fox, especially over the uh, holiday season. They used to do a big uh, holiday uh, event over here. Yeah, you were saying, and, and that's really neat. You know, we, we've talked in the, about some of those different kinds of character experiences, even things that you can find over at uh, the Empress Lily Riverboat and, and uh, Fort Wilderness and things like that. And I never realized that they had really a, a nice sort of Christmas outdoor event here as well. Uh, yes, and the, the only reason I know that is because uh, my brother, uh, Mike, who uh, was uh, a Streetmosphere character at uh, Disney MGM Studios uh, uh, in those days. He was... Um, the rawhide kid, a, a cowboy <laughs> with a huge lasso, and people could step into the lasso and uh, all of that. Uh, in in the Christmas evenings, he'd be over here at Port Orleans, uh, dressed up uh, as the jester, you know, in, in the in the yellow and green and and purple, and would be performing out here in in the courtyard at night. And Disney would give you uh, free hot roasted chestnuts and uh, or a sugar cookie, and they had uh, apple cider and they had. Uh, 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 what is it? Milk, uh, hot chocolate with uh, marshmallows. That was all free. And then he would uh, lead people down to the little area, which is now a playground, right in front of the pool. And uh, he would tell the story, the French story of um, uh, the first Noel, uh, the the story about the the little child who put a a candle in in the window, you know, to guide. Uh, uh, her father back home and uh, all of that. It, it was all all very touching and uh, all very wonderful. But but again, as I said, the the resort right now is pretty wonderful as it is. Yeah. And look, we've talked in the past about some of the stories about resorts, like Wilderness Lodge. We've done a show about you know Port Orleans and the very very elaborate backstory that exists here as well too. But you know, in, in terms of some of the things like the characters, I always find it fun to 
introduce or maybe reintroduce or help adults remember or introduce kids to some of the great films and through the characters that you can find throughout Walt Disney World. I think about Willie the Giant and Sir Mickey's, uh, Pecos Bill, Humphrey the Bear. Now you can really see him over in Storybook Circus. But you're unfortunately not able to do that now with some of the great characters like a Brer Fox and a Brer Bear in Splash Mountain because the film is not accessible. Absolutely. And, and you know, you're talking about Brer. Um, one of the reasons we're here at New Orleans Square as well, too, is uh, uh, this was uh, partly uh, Cajun uh, country. And so they would use a, um, a version of uh, French. And so in uh, French, the French word for brother was uh, frere. The English word was uh, brother, of course, and so you combine them together, that's where you get brer. And so the whole point of that, too, was that all the animals were brothers to, to, uh, to each other. Uh, so you'd be brer mongello, <laughs> and I'd be brer corcus uh, as we, we went here. And, and these were stories that were told uh, to children for, you know, uh, a hundred years or more. Uh, Walt Disney remembered as a child growing up uh, hearing those stories. It was one of the things that uh, inspired him to uh, want to do uh, a, a film or a series of films that would introduce those characters uh, to a new generation. So I want to, before we talk about the film itself, I, I do want to talk about its connection to Splash Mountain. And maybe mm-hmm. um, the best way to start is by by going back into history. I think we've all sort of heard the, the legend or the tale of Tony Baxter on his way over to Imagineering in 1983, realizing that, um, uh, you know, because Walt Disney had bought the rights to these characters from the Harris family in, in the late 1930s, they had this wonderful story and these incredible characters and music to work off of. So he had this concept for this log from attraction, this zippity river run, uh, presents it to Michael Eisner, who says, great idea, love it, except we've got this new movie coming out, and we really want to sort of promote what this is. Tony says, well, wait, it doesn't really fit. We're talking about characters that exist in the Deep South. You're talking about characters that exist up in Massachusetts. And, of course, that film was Splash with Daryl mm-hmm. Hannah and Tom Hanks. They come to a mutual agreement, say, all right, look, what if we did this? What if we if we put the, your, the name of your film in the title of the attraction, we get a new mountain, you get the name of your film, everybody goes home unhappy. And, and I actually, I had a chance to meet Tony Baxter, mm-hmm. and after getting to chat with him for a little while, I finally got up enough courage and said, look, I, I've heard the story a hundred times, and it just doesn't sound like it really... And I said, is that really how it happened? He says, absolutely. We had to agree on the name of Splash Mountain to, you know, appease what Michael Eisner wanted to do with the film Splash. And, and in fact, the, the story is, is even uh, uh, richer than that. Uh, basically, uh, Tony wasn't just on the Santa Ana Freeway. He was stuck in traffic where it was like a, a parking lot. And the problem they had is uh, America Sings, uh, that was in the old Carousel of Progress uh, theater, uh, was, was closing. And you had uh, all of those uh, audio-animatronic uh, characters. You had over a, uh, 100 audio-animatronic characters. And so what are you going to do? Put them in storage? Or are you going to cannibalize them for, uh, for something else? And the design of those characters in the attraction, of course, m- most people know, was done by uh, Disney legend Mark Davis. Mark Davis was also one of the directing animators on Song of the South. And so the character designs were very, very similar. Uh, Tony also knew 
that uh, Dick Nunes, who is in charge of the parks, uh, really wanted a uh, flume ride uh, because Knott's Berry Farm had come out with one that was very, very popular. And Nunes felt that the Disney Imagineers could come up with something better. And to make matters worse, um, Bear Country was around that little uh, uh, curve there and nobody was going out there you know it, it all that was out there was the country bear jamboree and there was a, a a bear restaurant pretty much and that that was it and so it needed to draw people over to that side and so they started to put all of these things together well we could do a flume ride and what if we use uh, uh, all of these uh, characters from America Sings? This will cut the cost. All we have to do is come up with new uh, audio animatronic figures for uh, Br'er Rabbit and uh, Br'er Fox and, and Br'er Bear, and, uh, and, and we can do this. And uh, uh, so, you know, they put, they put together uh, the model, and uh, it was uh, Eisner's insistence that Uncle Remus not be in the ride anywhere. And so the narrator is Br'er Frog, who, uh, of course, in the film, uh, is, a, is a good friend of Uncle Remus. Uncle Remus lights his, his pipe in a wonderful combination of live action and, and animation there. And, uh, yes, uh, Eisner was just in love with the idea of uh, uh, Splash. The, the first film made out here on uh, Orlando property was Splash 2. And, um, you know, the, uh, in, in Pleasure Island, there, were, there, there was going to be... Uh, uh, splash uh, uh, references uh, uh, there. Uh, the bottom line is, though, is that, you know, as they were trying to, they still kept trying to push, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Song of the South uh, flume, or uh, as you uh, alluded to, uh, the the zippity uh, doodah and, and all of this. And uh, the bottom line, and uh, Tony told me this, he, he says the bottom line is Eisner looked at us and he said, it's a mountain. There's a splash at the end. It's Splash Mountain. <laughs> well, he got his log flume. We got his log yeah. flume. Ryan, look, and again, it, it he did get what he wanted, which was a film that extracts 15 or so scenes directly from that film. For those of us who have seen Song of the South, yes, Uncle Remus is noticeably absent because he is such a prominent character in the film. But for those who haven't, what they understand is they have uh, a, an attraction that fits into Bear Country or Frontierland with the, the singing and dancing, uh, you know, rabbits and bears and foxes. Right. And uh, again, they designed the, the ride very cleverly where people can see that final splash so they, they know ahead of time whether they want to go on that, <laughs> that ride or not. I, I consider Splash Mountain one of the first... Um, uh, Disney schizophrenic rides uh, after Walt's death. And what I mean by schizophrenic is that on Splash Mountain, I will tell you that, uh, you know, I, most of you know that I have uh, young uh, uh, nieces and nephews and, and that uh, I did have older parents who passed away a few years ago. And um, they would have loved, they would have loved the first part of the ride and, and floating around on the water and seeing these audio animatronics. But by golly, that final splash 50 feet uh, down, 40 miles an hour, that would have killed them. Uh, on the other hand, I do, I do have a teenaged um, uh, nephew, and he loved the splash, 
but he was getting diabetic fits through the first part of the ride there. Um, and, and again, there's, there's some interesting changes in the ride because, of course, one of the most uh, famous um, Uncle Remus uh, uh, tales was the tale of the tar baby, and that, that uh, is in the film. Uh, however, that is, has become considered racist and, uh, in fact, uh, uh, in the late 40s and all, Tar Baby was actually a, a prerogative uh, term uh, used for, uh, for black people. And so by the time of the 70s, in Disney storybooks, you'll notice that Br'er Rabbit doesn't get caught in uh, black tar. He gets caught in white glue. It's a white glue baby. And then you notice in the Splash Mountain ride, they avoid that entirely and he's caught in honey. So uh, there, there are some, some nice references, but, you know, as you mentioned b- before, in the last theatrical United States re-release of Song of the South was in 1986, so a lot of people haven't uh, seen the film. They have no idea that those characters in there and all relate to, relate to anything, let alone a Disney film. And when it was released, it was re-released a number of times. Well, when it was re-released for the 40th anniversary, it was released as Walt Disney's classic. That's what the poster said. And I think that's what people need to understand, too, is that this is actually a film, and, and by correlation, the attraction has a connection to Walt Disney because he had said that there was something very appealing, something very satisfying about the tales of animals that behave like humans and the character who narrates them. And he said he was familiar personally with the Uncle Remus stories that that sort of went beyond this since he was a kid. And he said, from the time I began making animated features, I've had them definitely in my production plans. But until now, the medium wasn't ready to give them an adequate film equivalent in scope and fidelity. And in their timeless and living appeal, their magnificent pictorial quality, their rich and tolerant humor, their homely philosophy and cheerfulness, which made the Remus legends the top choice for our first production with with flesh and blood players. Okay, and I'm telling you right now, fire Tom Hanks from Saving Mr. Banks. You heard Lou Mangiello do his impression of, of uh, Walt Disney. This is He's got to grow the mustache, got to grow the mustache, but other than that, he's in like Flint. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely true, but there were some other reasons behind the making of uh, uh, Song of the South. Uh, first off, uh, uh, in the war, uh, Walt saw that he really needed to diversify into live action because uh, with animation, it takes it's so labor intensive. It takes so long. You have uh, so many people involved. Uh, but what happened is RKO was distributing the Disney films, and so the stipulation in the contract was that Walt would produce. Uh, animated films, although there was sort of a little codicil in there that you could combine live action and animation. And so that's where you get in the Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos. And so Walt was looking at Song of the South to expand. He, he always considered Song of the South his first live action film. And he was looking to expand into live action, but he had to have animation in there. And the animation in Song of the South only covers a third of the film. Uh, you know, to meet the requirements of the RKO um, uh, contract. So he was looking to diversify, looking to get, to get into uh, live action. This was perfect. And, you know, we always, and I always say this too, Walt never liked to repeat himself, never wanted to do sequels. Uh, there's uh, paperwork in the archives that shows that Walt was hoping Song of the South was going to be a huge success, and he would use that as a template 
uh, for at least two sequels using the same, uh, uh, well, at least using the same uh, actor, uh, Jimmy Basquette, as Uncle Remus in live action and then doing more animated uh, segments. And that would be, as they say in Disney terminology today, cost effective. <laughs> right, because there are obviously many stories, you know, that they could have mm-hmm. uh, selected, you know, drawn from in, in making of the film. And I think, um, like you said, it, it's classic because you did have some of those legendary Disney artists and animators, Claude Coates. Cla- God, I can't speak Claude to Coates. Claude Coates. That's, I'm doing my Walt. <laughs> Walt had a tough time with that name, too. Uh, Mary Blair, Milt Call, Eric Larson, Ollie Johnson, Les Clark. Mark Davis and John Lounsbury. So it, there was a lot to it in terms of artistic. Certainly, uh, the music. It had won two Academy Awards for uh, Zippity Doodah's best song, and it was nominated for best scoring of a motional picture. And James ba- James Basquette actually won an honorary Oscar as well, uh, which was highly, highly uh, uh, unusual. And uh, in in fact, believe it or not, the Hollywood community was strongly behind that. It was Walt himself who wrote to the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and said that James Basquiat should be considered. Now, again, because of the uh, time period and all, you can't nominate James Basquiat, uh, you know, in a regular category. That that was not, uh, uh, you know, acceptable. And in fact, the very first uh, black actor uh, to win a competitive uh, Oscar for uh, uh, Best Actor was Sidney Poitier in, in 67 for uh, Lilies of the Field. Um, but he felt that Basquette really needed to be um, uh, honored because uh, uh, the director uh, that, he, uh, that he had, just the live-action director, just was like, okay, well, start shooting. You know, there was no, and so in the letter he wrote, he said, Basquette created the character himself, created a lot of those uh, moments himself. And as I said, a lot of Hollywood was behind that. Uh, Betty Davis, uh, Hedda Hopper, they all wrote letters in, in support of that. And so uh, Ingrid Bergman uh, gave him a, uh, uh, an Oscar. And then sadly, uh, because of uh, diabetes and, and uh, other uh, health problems, uh, Basquette passed away about uh, six months later. After uh, receiving that Oscar, which was a which was a huge loss, you know, you you mentioned that uh, six of the nine old men worked directly on this film, and most of them said that it was the uh, happiest experience of their life working on animation because they could uh, they could just really break loose. Walt was always constantly trying to go towards more realism in animation like Bambi and, and that. In this, they, they, they could go wild. And because there was just a short section of animation, they could devote all of their attention to that animation rather than spreading it out over, over uh, uh, 90 minutes. And... Uh, by golly, and, and in fact, the, the reviewers of, of the film originally all had high praise for the animation. They said, we wish there had been more li- animation and less uh, live action. And so maybe what we should do, Jim, is because I think so many people have not certainly seen the film and may actually be unfamiliar with the story, let's just sort of um, summarize the story a little bit, and then let's talk about what this film's significance was, because I think there were a lot of important things beyond the, the sort of mix of live and animation um, that it represents. Uh, okay. And uh, 
so uh, uh, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear were on their way to a meet and greet with Lou Mangiello, <laughs> and <laughs> along the way, now okay, that's the worst Walt Disney impression <laughs> I've ever heard. Uh, uh, basically, there's the uh, live action storyline, and the animation are uh, stories that. Um, uh, Uncle Remus tells to a young boy uh, to help him learn life lessons. So the the bottom uh, the bottom line is this takes place uh, after the Civil War. Now the film doesn't make that as clear as it should be. Although there are, are certain references in there where you can spot it immediately, because at one point in the film, Uncle Remus says, uh, "You know, I'm packing up and I'm going. I don't have to put up with this." If this was during the time of slavery, he would be considered property. He wouldn't have the freedom to go do that. So the the storyline is, and none of this was written by Joel Chandler Harris, who wrote the Uncle Remus tales. the The animated segments were based on on that, and the character was based on uh, some of Joel Chandler Harris's uh, uh, Uncle Remus tales. But the rest was a brand new screenplay written by a first-time screenwriter, uh, uh, Dalton uh, Raymond. And so uh, a, a young boy is, is taken by his, his mom and dad to his grandmother's plantation in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, un, unknown to, the, uh, unknown to the, the young boy, uh, Johnny, uh, his, his parents are estranged. And so the father leaves to go back to Atlanta, leaving Johnny to try and adapt to this new environment. He wants to run away. Uh, he runs into Uncle Remus, and Uncle Remus tells him a, uh, a story about Br'er Rabbit, and that goes into animation. And so Johnny uh, uh, decides to stay. Uh, he makes friends uh, with uh, uh, Toby, who is a young uh, uh, black boy about his same age, and uh, Ginny, uh, uh, a young, uh, uh, very nice girl, but from the wrong side of the uh, uh, tracks, a very poor family whereas Johnny's family is, is uh, a, a lot better off. And uh, Ginny has two um, older brothers who are uh, a real uh, pain in the rear. And so in the Uncle Remus stories that Uncle Remus is, is telling, uh, Br'er Rabbit is sort of a surrogate for Johnny, little Johnny, and getting out of trouble. And Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear are sort of symbolic of Ginny's two older brothers who are constantly teasing uh, Ginny and Johnny and uh, uh, getting them um, uh, in, into trouble. Now, uh, the mother, Johnny's mother, uh, fears that these stories that are being told are uh, not good uh, uh, for Johnny. They're, uh, you know, and so uh, uh, forbids uh, Remus from telling him any more uh, uh, story. So Remus decides to, okay, I'm going to pack up and I'm going to leave and I, I'm actually going to go to Atlanta because a boy needs his father. I'm going to let him, his father know, needs to come back. Johnny hears about this and uh, runs to try and stop Remus and he cuts through a, uh, uh, a pen that has a bull and uh, the bull of course, Johnny's wearing red as well, too. The The bull gores Johnny, so Johnny is, is hanging there between uh, uh, life and death. The father does show up. It does have a happy ending. I hate for that to be a spoiler for you. Uh, it does ha have a uh, uh, happy ending there, and, and uh, Remus is, is told, no, I, we were wrong to tell you not to tell stories, and 
and uh, all of that. And so that's sort of the Cliff Notes uh, classic illustrated uh, version of Disney's uh, uh, Song of the South. It, it, it runs roughly about 90 minutes, and as I said, a third of that is uh, uh, devoted to those uh, animated uh, tales. And look, I think it's significant not just because it's a great story and there's life lessons and there's great music and there's great animation, but I think this is really, it, I said it's significant because it seems to be the first live-action film that really deals with some heavy kind of real-life drama, right? We, we've seen the animated films where um, a character or an animal loses a parent, but this is one where, you know, a kid is dealing with, you know, divorce and difficult things like that, and it's really addressed uh, in a different kind of way for Disney. It is, it is, but, but it's still on that same level of um, fantasy, which, again, an awful lot of audiences didn't... Uh, uh, grasp. You know, Walt was not trying to make a uh, historical documentary of, of what life was like in the Old South, uh, you know, after the Civil War. Uh, he was making a, a film that was just as much a, a fantasy as Cinderella, whatever. And, and you can see that because Mary Blair was doing a lot of the background designs and that same color influence influenced uh, the, the live action. But yes, a, as you said, there's very dramatic moments because Walt was looking at this as his first live action film and he wanted to be uh, competitive with other fully live action films that were out there. And so the uh, cameraman for this was uh, Greg Tolan, who was the very famous cameraman uh, for Citizen Kane. And this was the very first time he worked in color, you know, to uh, to to get this done. And um, Walt, uh, and as you said, everything is not all peaches and cream, even though it's a a fantasy type uh, uh, environment. Uh, yeah, there's some very heavy duty issues. Your your parents are breaking up, uh, being a, uh, being a young kid and being trying to be accepted in a new environment. Uh, learning that there's different social classes and and not understanding how, how that all all works out. Uh, and again, this was a highly innovative film for the time because, again, Johnny's best friend is this little black boy. And the little black boy is not his servant, right. is not subservient uh, uh, to that. Uh, the black characters are all sympathetic and 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 clever and warm and friendly you know most most of the white characters are 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 sometimes uh dysfunctional or uh uh in in the case of the mother she's really just not listening to her son you know i i i'm expecting it done this way and and she's not uh, being sensitive to uh what he's uh, going through and and this was unique because when this film was released it was released november 1946 and 1947 is where it had the wide release. Um, you know, usually you had movie theaters that were only for white patrons and only for African American patrons. And if you had a film, there were sometimes films that were made just for black theaters, where you'd have black cowboys and black detectives, all, all of this. Or if you had a typical Hollywood film like a musical, you would have someone like Lena Horne in a separate segment so it could be cut out, so it could be shown in the South. Song of the South is one of the first films that, that, that is showing this sort of racial equality um, that was not uh, uh, censored, you know. Uh, and, and in terms of racism, you, you had 
films that were much more racist, including Shirley Temple films like uh, Little Rebel and Little Colonel, where she's dancing with uh, Bill Bojangles uh, Robinson. Uh, one of those films actually takes place during the Civil War. And yes, they're all happy uh, to be working on that plantation <laughs> and happy to be working for Little Miss Shirley uh, at Temple there. That, that's even more of a fantasy than Song of the South. And Gone with the Wind, of course, is even more extreme. But I, I think, and, and we talked about this a little earlier while we were uh, sitting around and walking around the resort here, is that Disney is a very prominent target. And so people picked on this. Well, I think to that point, too, you know, Michael Eisner specifically did not want Uncle Remus in the attraction, but he really is the most endearing character in the film. And when I watched it and when I watch it again, I look at things like, we talk about the 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 use of race and, and race in the film. You talk about how you know this racial prejudice doesn't affect Johnny. It just did not something. His best friends are Uncle Remus and Toby, right? And and how uh, uh, Uncle Remus even and and Miss uh, Dashi how they get along. They sort of have this common concern for the children, sort of forgetting about any sort of racial inequalities or what had had taken place prior and the, the sort of the the two elders kind of coming together uh, mm-hmm. looking after the, the, the their concerns for the family and uh, you know I, I had a um, I was on a panel discussion with two uh, uh, black history instruct instruct ugh, I can't talk today too. See, I guess that's not that it's, it's catching <laughs> I, I guess it's the the area here two black uh, history instructors from uh, uh, UCF University of Central Florida you know, and they were going on, oh, and, and, and look when uh, 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 Remus is, is talking to the grandmother, you know, his, his, his eyes go down, you know, and, and that's that uh, slave master mentality. And I, I said, no, it, he's, he's just being deferential to her because she's a woman, she's trying to run that plantation by, her, by herself, you know, he, he, and so you can't start to read in uh, all of these elements that, that weren't, that you can't look at this film with the eyes of 2013. You've got to look at the this through the eyes of 1947, in which case it really was the least offensive of any of the Hollywood films that, 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 that were coming out. And uh, as we've been talking about back and forth, actually presented a very positive uh, attitude of, yes, a little white boy and a little black boy can... can uh, um, play together as as peers, you know? And again, Uncle Remus, when I saw it as a kid, you know, it it didn't even register to me, oh, well, Uncle Remus is is black and maybe he's a slave and all that. I just thought, what a nice guy and what a great storyteller. (laughs) You could see why Johnny takes to him because Mm -hmm. he's so warm and he's so grandfatherly. I mean, look, I even saw it as, at the end of the film, you know, not not, uh, only does Johnny come out of it, but even Sally kind of gets past her prejudice a little bit mm-hmm. to, to save her son. And that's sort of the ulti- other ultimate resolution is she's gotten past her prejudice towards Uncle Remus. Well, what, what is amazing, and there's so many things about uh, the film that people miss, is, is at the very end of the film when uh, uh, Johnny runs into Uncle Remus and Uncle Remus says, oh, and where are you going? He says, well, we're following Br'er Rabbit. And then suddenly the animated Br'er Rabbit is there and Johnny and the rest are following. Take a look at Uncle Remus's face and he is just blown away. It's almost like, they really are real? What, <laughs> what, what is this? And, and, it's, and it's that magic of storytelling of, of, of going on. And, and yes, you know, the, the, the father and the mother get back together and realize that the most important thing 
you know, is the child and they can reconcile these uh, uh, differences. Uh, Sally realizes that, you know, she can't uh, uh, raise uh, uh, Johnny in, the, in this strict uh, uh, format that, you know, it's a new world, it's a different world, and her son is so important that, and he's a good kid, too, you know, to, to let him, let him uh, grow up. A lot of positive, positive things. And you go away feeling positive. You mentioned zippity doodah. A lot of people don't realize that that, that uh, phrase, that word, does not exist in the Joel Chandler Harris stories. That is a word that was invented by Walt Disney. Hmm. Walt Disney loved those kind of words like bibbity bobbity boo and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Well, uh, in, in fact, uh, you you know Richard Sherman and talk with Richard Sherman. Richard Sherman d- w- was hesitant to call the song supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, <laughs> right? Until Walt stepped in and said, "No, I love that. That's what we're going with." Yeah, and you know the the thing about this film and part of the reason why we're we're talking about it is. Because not because look, we like this film. We like the message. We like the story. It ends the way Disney's films are supposed to, happily ever after, and and the sun sets. But from its initial release, there has always been controversy, and controversy that has continued to this day. Which is part of the reason why we're talking about it. Part of the reason why it's brought up at shareholder meetings, possibly for the last time after this last one. And I think Jim, uh, and certainly I would never tell somebody who finds something. Um, uncomfortable or offensive not to feel that way but some of the very early controversy came from people who were creating controversy after not even seeing the film so for example the NAACP issues a statement talking about uh, perpetuating this glorified uh, picture of slavery and this uh, idyllic master-slave relationship distorting facts although they admit later on that the person who put that statement out never actually saw the film, never realized that it's this Reconstruction era, post-Civil War, post-master-slave relationship time. And, and, and again, some of the, some of the uh, uh, fault has got to fall on, on Walt that he didn't make this clear. You know, all it would have taken is in the first couple of seconds of the film saying 1867 or whatever, and, and, and so you would know, you know, or 1870, whatever. And uh, again... Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to be uh, insensitive to those people uh, who are upset by, by images in this film, but one of the reasons I wrote the book uh, was, and, and you know me, I don't write sleazy, I don't write tabloid, it's just the facts. It's, it, it's sort of like you're buying the making of uh, Song of the South book, so you get the background of what choices were made, why the choices were made, why maybe some of those choices were bad. But um, what happened at that time period is you have to realize is that um, uh, black folks were being uh, lynched uh, in the South. In, in fact, uh, they were trying to push through an anti-lynching law of, uh, of all things. And, and Truman was dragging his feet about uh, supporting uh, such a thing. To, to me, this is just horrendous. This is just, you know, out- outrageous. And there were so many films that were out there that you know, uh, you did have black actors, and the only way you were seeing them were in subservient roles or in comic roles where they were supposed to be uh, flustered or lazy or illiterate or, or, or all of these negative things, and there were no other images balancing that out. Today, we have plenty of, of positive uh, images, whether it, it, it's uh, 
Bill Cosby and the Huxtable family or Barack Obama as president or whatever. We have tons of other images to compensate for that. But in the 1940s, when this came out, the only images that were coming out of, of black people were putting them in, in these negative um, uh, positions. And so if you want to attack that, you don't attack a, a, a minor B film that nobody's ever going to see. You go for a big target, and Disney was a big target. And as Lou uh, pointed out, yes, when the NAACP released that statement, of course, there's a lot of wrong things. First off, it doesn't take place during the time of slavery. But it, uh, the statement was based, because they were being pushed to come and, and release a statement, the, the statement was released early because two secretaries went and saw an early screening of the film. And I've, I've, I've read those letters, and, and they're mentioned and they're quoted uh, uh, in my book. And they loved the film. They thought the film was great. They thought the, the film wa- was funny. But again, they said, you know, we, we need to point out that some of those stereotypical images are still there. Um, the, uh, uh, the black sharecroppers, you know, singing the, uh, the uh, spirituals. There's a heavy use of, of dialect. Well, the point of this is, is that dialect was natural at that t- time time period, and, and, and it wasn't just for um, African Americans. It, it was white people used some of that dialect as well. I have friends in, in the South, and they come up and they say, uh, uh, oh, get me a pop. And I, I say, what, a soda? You want a soda? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a pop. Well, what kind of a pop? Well, a Coke pop. What? What are you talking about? Uh, so there's some of that. And, and you need to realize that the, um, the voices and the performers of the sharecroppers, and they're not slaves, they're sharecroppers, uh, is the Hall Johnson Choir. The Hall Johnson Choir was a very famous African-American choir. Hall Johnson himself was very uh, adamant about black rights and all, but he put together a choir because he felt it was necessary uh, to preserve the spirituals and all of the, these songs because they hadn't been written down. They'd only been uh, passed along orally. And so um, Green Grow the Lil- Lilacs and all of that, uh, uh, his group prof- uh, provided the, the, the music. Uh, they're the voices of the Crows in Dumbo, by the way, except for Jim Crow, who uh, is uh, Cliff Edwards, Jiminy Cricket. Um, but uh, so they're doing this, and he would never have... Um, Paul Johnson would never have partnered with any project that he thought was demeaning uh, uh, to that. And, and again, if you listen to these spirituals, um, uh, you know, slaves never sang because they were happy. <laughs> slaves came, sang to try and lift their spirits. And so in the film, they're singing on their way to work and they're singing on their way back to work, you know, to try and do that. And then the third time that they sing, it's because they're concerned that the Johnny is up there and Johnny may die. And I think all of that is legitimate and not, and not promoting, oh, well, you know, all, the, all these happy folks. That's not the intent in the film. That's not the purpose in the film. That's not the way it's used. But, but again, you take a look at how it's used in other films and so you go, oh, yeah, well, oh, yes, yes, yes. And even today, there are people who condemn the film who have not seen it. Uh, a very famous uh, African-American uh, film director, Spike Lee, 
uh, I was I was told this uh, condemns the film, doesn't want it to be released, has never seen it. And and by the way, uh, for those of you who are oh well, I don't know if I need should buy Jim's book because. I don't know if that's an iffy type thing. That's one of the reasons the foreword is written by Disney legend Floyd Norman. Floyd Norman uh, was uh, Disney's first black animator and story man. He was hired by Walt himself. He knew Walt. He said, I don't know about all of these people who are calling Walt racist. He says, I worked with Walt. I was, when I was a story man, I was pulled up into the story meetings and there was Walt and I could see him in action and he never treated me any uh, better than anybody else or any worse than anybody else. Um, he, he says, he treated us all the same. He treated us all like we were jerks. He <laughs> said, uh, and we didn't know anything, and come on, let's get on the ball and get this done. Um, but uh, Floyd loves uh, uh, the film, and, and in the foreword, he, he writes a nice lengthy foreword. Uh, uh, at one point, Floyd was working for Disney Publications, and over the Christmas season, which we're in now, Disney used to release a Christmas comic strip that would start appearing in November and it would appear daily in, in a newspaper and then it would uh, end up on uh, December 25th and Santa Claus would have come and, and helped the Dalmatian save the day or whatever. And so um, Floyd decided that uh, since he loved the film so much, he was going to write a comic strip about uh, Johnny and Ginny going to Uncle Remus and asking about, you know, it, it, it's so warm we might not get uh, 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 snow. There was even global warming in those days. Uh, we might not get snow. Will Santa Claus ever, ever find us? And so Uncle Remus starts to tell a story about how Rare Rabbit felt the same way and how it did get resolved and how Santa showed up and all of that. And he said, uh, uh, you know, sent it in. It got penciled the whole bit. Editors of newspapers sent these... Um, uh, you know, uh, terrible, terrible letters about how dare Disney do this and how insensitive Disney is. And Floyd says, I would have liked to have seen the look on their faces when they pointed out that the guy who wrote this was black. <laughs> and he says, but it did run and there were no complaints in any of the newspapers whatsoever. So sometimes people are reacting ahead of time right. rather than, than from what is actually there. I do feel there's a strong need to be able to put um, the film in context, right. especially for younger audiences, because Lou and I were talking a little earlier today about we, we've got an entire generation who really doesn't know Walt Disney, really doesn't uh, remember things like rotary phones or or, <laughs> or, 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 or things like that, or, or, or a time where, no, the TV was black and white and you only got three channels. You know, uh, so uh, a lot of this stuff, a lot of history has been forgotten. Anything beyond 10 years. A lot of young people don't know. So it needs to be put into context and I think is a wonderful springboard uh, for conversations between uh, parents and children and between other people. I agree. And, you know, uh, Roger Ebert, who is the, uh, the, the noted film critic, uh, who has always been a proponent of everything should be out there for people to see and mm -hmm. judge. This is actually one of the few films he says that he thinks that because it's a Disney film, because it becomes the consciousness of, of mm -hmm. American children, should not. Students should see it, but kids should not because they take films more literally than do adults. And to that point, Jim, I, I agree with that, but I've shown this film to my kids. Um, I, I have it in, in digital format. My kids have watched it multiple times. And when they see it, they don't see it in terms of race. They see... 
you know, Johnny and his friend without there be a, uh, being a distinction of color. That's how my kids are being raised. So they're not looking at it in terms of, well, Dad, where did this really fit into the whole context of slavery? It's these two people are getting along, different colors, different backgrounds, everything else like that. So I agree that it should be shown as long as you can, as long as that's the message that you are uh, explaining to those who might need help sort of interpreting that. And and actually to enlarge in that, it has been shown frequently in, 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 the, in uh, the, the last few years without that context, and no race riots ha- have uh, 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 been generated. Uh, it hasn't been shown theatrically in the United States since 1986, but it's been released in Japan, it's been released in Europe, and it's been released in South America. Uh, the BBC, uh, too, the BBC, too, in, in uh, the UK has played it several times during the Christmas season. And again, there's no uh, comments, there's no negative feedback, and this is without historical context. I know that, uh, and, and again, I don't blame the Disney Company. I, I didn't write this book to annoy or embarrass the Disney Company. I wrote this book so that the information about the film could get out there, so that when people do have conversations about the film, they have a, a better understanding about what they're seeing and why it's there and who worked on that and, and how that, led to, uh, how that uh, led to other things. But I don't blame the Disney Company for not releasing it because the Disney is, Company is a very prominent target, and there will be people who will react to it Never seeing the film, but just oh my gosh, this right. is this is demeaning and the knee jerk reaction and, 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 right. and, and all of that. And so you know, uh, I, I was disappointed that Bob Iger even took off the table a limited release. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that just like the Disney Treasures, you know, if there was a limited release and it was obviously marketed just to adults, you know, um, uh, you know, would that work? But uh, the the last time Iger was asked, he even pulled that. Uh, off the table because again there's nothing to be gained from the right. Disney company uh, releasing this the Disney company still makes a ton of merchandise money from these characters not Uncle Remus but but uh, <laughs> Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear and Br'er Fox uh, and uh, and also off of, of Splash Mountain but I, I will say that it, it breaks my heart a little bit to because uh, I know this uh, personally that there are people who ride that attraction and have no idea that it's connected to uh, uh, a Disney uh, film whatsoever, or, or why that film was made. Or and again, most of the animators who worked on this said that this is some of the favorite animation they have ever done. And this uh, Roy E. Disney, I, I was talking with him, and he, and he was trying to promote. Well, can we just package and release the animation? Mm. And now you're getting into the dialect and all that. And, and again, the, the people who did the voices were, again, black performers. James Basquette not only did Uncle Remus, he did the fox. He did Br'er Fox. And, in fact, uh, everyone I talked to, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, said, my gosh, he was, he was our, one of our favorite voice artists ever because he could talk so fast, but he could go up high, he could go low, he could put so much into this, and, and, and he, he, he could get out two words a second, which is faster <laughs> than we could animate it. Um, uh, Br'er Rabbit was done by Johnny Lee, who was a, a, a black singer. And, and in fact, an interesting thing is, is during the Laughing Place scene, Johnny Lee wasn't available to record Br'er Rabbit's uh, voice because he was overseas on a USO tour. 
James Basquette stepped in and did uh, Rare Rabbit's <laughs> voice in there, and the laugh that he does, the laugh that he does, is reused. Uh, in Jungle Book when Baloo tickles King Louie. <laughs> this is all in the book, folks. This is all in the book. And I'm not giving away the book. There's more in the book than than, than all of this. And, uh, of course, Br'er Bear was done by uh, uh, Nick Stewart. And um, uh, I got a chance to meet him out in California when he was like, gosh, in, in, in his late 70s, almost, almost 80, because they had brought him out of retirement to do the voice of Br'er Bear in the uh, Splash Mountain attraction. And uh, so I was talking to him and I said, well, you know, did you feel uncomfortable doing this film? Were you? He said, no. He says, we were, we were treated like kings. And he says, and I love the, the character and this is part of our heritage and, and, and part of our background. And he says, and you know what I did with the money, right? And I said, no. What he did with the money from working on Amos and Andy and also working on who on uh, Song of the South he took that money and he created a very prestigious all black theater company in Los Angeles because that was his dream was to create a theater company where uh, blacks could perform as more than just uh, butlers and maids and all of that so all of the money he made from uh, from this went right in, into that uh, theater very, very nice man, funny man, and, and no, no, no resentment even in, in, in retrospect. He says, I wish they'd release that film more. He says, I love that film. Well, my disappointment in the lack of the release of the film is because people are not able to enjoy and appreciate, you can even break it down, the individual elements, right? Whether it's the music, the animation, the uh, the actor's performance, which obviously was worthy of an Oscar at a time where when he mm-hmm. w- normally would not have gotten it. And look, to me, the message of this is, I think, the message that is, is meant to be portrayed at the end, which is people of different race and colors and backgrounds getting along together, working together, having a common love and interest in family. I think that's what the message is that, you know, I know that my kids took away from it. So that's where my disappointment comes in, in terms of that. Well, well I think the, the real message is that people of, of any age, any sex, any race can get along with animated characters. I think that is the theme of the of, of the film there. Do not be afraid of animated characters no matter what you, you saw in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Well, <laughs> I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Um, so my question for those people who are listening is this. Is actually, I have two questions. Is One, have you seen Song of the South? But number two, do you think it should be released again? Should this be put out for home release, limited release, theatrical release, whatever it may should be? There be any re- should there be any restrictions? And, and the other question— Or should it be put in context? Do you yes. put something—do you put a mm-hmm. title card in the front saying— this film takes place in such and such a year. Yeah. It's in the Reconstruction era. Yeah, you know, or, or even have a prominent uh, uh, black performer or spokesman, you know, do one of those little short introductions, you know, a couple of minutes before that. And then the other question that, that needs to be asked is, um, have you bought my book, Who's Afraid exactly, of the Song of the that South? Exactly, that was and, 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 and why not? And, uh, well, and because it just came out. So, I mean, yeah. songs that literally just came out. Yeah. And the thing that's great, look, Jim, you go not through just 
um, the history. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the, the way you do it is not yeah. you taking sources that you, online. It's you literally going and speaking to people who mm-hmm. Were worked on the film. Right? Yeah. So you talk about the troubles with making the film the problems with the screenplay, the actors, the animation, Walt Disney's personal contributions, and lots more. And, ter- and then also you put the film in context today, and a lot about what we were speaking about too. But there's a bonus, because the book is called Who's Afraid of the Song of the South? But there's more additional stories about there from things that maybe, from other stories that maybe you hadn't heard before about, you know, some... Uh, Walt, animated- be- Walt becoming a Republican. <laughs> Why did Walt become a Republican since he was apolitical? Well... I, I, will t- I will tell you this. When I announced to, to people that I was going to be doing a book on Song of the South, just the topic alone was controversial. Even though I tried to say, look, you know me. I'm not, I'm not going to be you know, a, a, a TMZ reporter or a <laughs> National Enquirer reporter, uh, whatever. I'm, I just want the facts out there of, of the, the, the people doing that. Oh, no, no, no. That, that's a... So what I did to fill out the book was I have a lot of other stories where just the topic alone is going to be controversial. So, for instance, I talk about uh, a character called Sunflower. Excuse me, a character called Sunflower, who was the little black centaurette in Fantasia, who was edited out. And so I talk about how that character developed and, and uh, you know, uh, what scene she was in and who animated those scenes. But at the end of that chapter, I point out that cutting Sunflower out of the film was made in 1956 by Walt Disney himself. All of those who claim that he's racist, he's the one who said, well, I think this may be insensitive. We're going to uh, eliminate this. Uh, we talk about why Walt became a, uh, a, a Republican, a conservative Republican uh, later in life, where in the early part of his life, he was apolitical. But on his deathbed, he, he turns to his daughter, Diane, and says, I always considered myself a true liberal. Uh, for for this, uh, we we talk about there's UFOs. Uh, Any book that has yes. UFOs in it, you know. <laughs> we we talk we talk about Ward Kimball because we talk about the, the trilogy of the the three uh, space shows for uh, the Disneyland TV show. There was actually supposed to be a fourth show about UFOs, and Walt supported this, and how it almost got made until the U.S. military stepped in and just put a stop to this. Uh, we we have stories about the making of. Uh, John Carter, uh, all of the original versions uh, before the the one that uh, that came out that Disney was going to do, uh, Walt's attempt to make uh, um, a Wizard of Oz movie. Uh, we even have a chapter about Jessica Rabbit and and how the character was created, how the character developed, how the character changed, and then how Disney just had their hands full with this character and tried to eliminate her cleavage and the slit up her dress and 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 all of this because they had never had to deal with such a uh, blatantly uh, sexy character before. So there's 17 of those stories. And and again, if you're still hesitant, uh, also uh, out right now is the revised Vault of Walt. The Vault of Walt, I shifted publishers, so I had to pull the book out of... Uh, uh, release uh, for about six weeks, and suddenly on Amazon they were selling copies for three thousand dollars. So I got emails from people <laughs> yes. saying Jim's book is on Amazon for three hundred dollars. Is it really that good? I said, do not buy this book <laughs> yes. yet, yes. because we knew that this book was coming mm-hmm. out. And, and and so not only is the book out now, and it's out less expensive. 
but I've added, uh, uh, for all of those people who've been such strong supporters, uh, I added five additional stories in there, including uh, Walt's favorite recipes and how Walt uh, would eat, uh, and also a, a chapter called uh, The Man Who Shot Walt Disney, <gasps> which actually <laughs> refers to a photographer, Rene Bardot, who shot the famous photo of Walt walking through the castle, uh, you know, and also the last photo of Walt, you know, waving uh, uh, with, uh, with Mickey. So, um, uh, remember that I'm an orphan. Uh, re- remember that it's the holiday season. Uh, and uh, Lou, thank you so much for for uh, for letting me share some of these stories and clear up some misconceptions. And by the way, in the book, um, there, there's all sorts of little fun facts that nobody has ever brought out about who's afraid of the Song of the South. For instance, um, we all know Clarence Nash, the voice of Donald Duck, right? He was also an expert at doing bird calls. He it does the bird chirps for hmm. Mr. Bluebird on Uncle Remus's shoulder. And, and Lou's going, all right, okay. I almost, I almost did my worst Mr. Bluebird uh, uh, impression, but I won't. My Walt Disney impression was bad enough. <laughs> and, and, and then um, uh, uh, Billy, uh, Bobby Driscoll, uh, Bobby Driscoll, who played Johnny, didn't know how to skip. So they had Disney animators like Ham Lusk out there skipping around, showing him this is how skipping looks. So for the last scene, uh, uh, do that. But uh, but there's a lot of background, and again, it's it's broken up into nice little uh, sizable uh, uh, chunks. So there's a uh, a chapter on on how the project began. There's a project on the uh, there's a chapter on the uh, screenplay. There's a chapter on the live action actors. There's a chapter on the Animation. There's even a chapter on uh, the controversy, the controversy at the time, and why the controversy has uh, continued to this day. And and again, I think we can find a, a balance. I, I don't I don't blame uh, uh, people who uh, you know are are a little sensitive to the the, the film being uh, uh, re released. You know, uh, but I think we can find a balance there where all of us can enjoy this. And in, enjoy something of, of Waltz uh, at his uh, at his peak, and uh, characters that I think uh, can still today uh, help teach us lessons, just like uh, Aesop's fables. I agree, and I want to make it easy for everybody. I'm going to put links to uh, Who's Afraid of the Song of the South and the revised Vault of Walt in this week's show notes, both the Kindle version. And the print version. You should really get both. One to read on your device, <laughs> one to put on your shelf um, for to, to save because we like seeing books and, and collecting books on our shelves. Do you want any fun facts about new uh, Port Orleans? we got to come back and do Port Orleans we again. we Port Orleans? Which is going to give us an excuse to go have beignets over at Riverside. Oh, I, I don't... That's right. They should have beignets at both places. I agree with you. So, yeah, visit the show notes over at www.radio.com slash 305. You can comment on the show. You can comment on Song of the South, answer our questions. And if you have any questions for Jim, you can post them there, too. Jim will check the comments as well. Jim Corcus, Vault of Walt, who's afraid of Song of the South? You are a good man, Charlie Brown. Always love having you on. And congratulations on your two new books. And thank you again so much 
for sharing your stories with us. And 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 thank you, Lou. And happy holidays, not only to you, but but to your listeners. They're the most wonderful listeners in the world. I, I told Lou before we started taping today. A lot of people are described as Disney historians. I, I consider Lou a Disney. Uh, historian, but I think Lou is the only Disney historian that can be described as the beloved Disney historian. He he, he is so loved by by all of you, and I I see that when when I go to uh, uh, events uh, as well. And I am here to tell you that what you hear on these podcasts is exactly how he is uh, in real life. He he is a, a wonderful friend. He has been inspirational and supportive of me. And so his name is in the back in the acknowledgments of both of my books. So when you get the books, make sure you take them to a Lou uh, meet and greet and have Lou give you an autograph there. No, thank no, you no. again, Lou. Happy holidays. Jim, thanks uh, to you as well, too. I, I'm, I'm not the, um, I, I'm really more of the huggable Disney historian. That's a, a, and I'm much taller in person. Are, are, are you the Duffy Disney historian? <laughs> okay. It's time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I challenge you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history, see how well you pay attention to the details in what you see, hear, and experience in the parks. We'll then randomly select one winner for a Disney prize package. But before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So on last week's show, we had the full recap and review of New Fantasyland, Test Track, and Splitsville. And I told you how much I loved the details and the stories and the connection to Dumbo in Storybook Circus. So the question was to see how well you knew the film and its connection to Storybook Circus's story. So I quoted at the beginning a line from the film where we talked about how the storks fly through the snow and the sleet and the hail, through the blizzards and over the mountains and over the plains, so they could deliver the circus animals. And your question was simply this. In what U.S. state did the storks deliver Dumbo and the other circus animals to? And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that Storybook Circus is right here in Florida because that's the answer to the question. And here's a couple of quick did-you-knows about the film Dumbo. Did you know that it was the only Disney animated feature film that has a title character that doesn't speak? Right? Dumbo never talks. And in fact, Mrs. Jumbo, who's Dumbo's mom, only speaks once when she says Dumbo's name. And speaking of the film being set in Florida, did you also know that this was the first Walt Disney animated feature film, and still one of very few, that was actually set in the United States? So congratulations and thank you to the hundreds of you once again that entered and got this one correctly. You're playing for all of my audio tours of the Magic Kingdom, a WDW Radio luggage tag, button, and a set of mystery Disney pins from New Fantasyland. This week's winner is Sarah Zarenko. So Sarah, congratulations. Please send me your address. I'll get your package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, thank you again for playing. And don't worry, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. As I mentioned during the recording of this week's show, Jim and I taped it at one of my favorite, moderate, really favorite of all the Walt Disney World resorts, Port Orleans French Quarter. I love the theming. It's quaint. It's charming. It's small. You can get po'boys in the food court. 
And there's so much story here. It's modeled after the styles and architecture of the French Quarter in New Orleans, sort of the deep south of America by the lower Mississippi River. And even the check-in lobby is themed. So here's your question this week. What type of building is the registration lobby of Port Orleans French Quarter Resort themed after? You can email your answer to contest at wdwradio.com. You have until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, December 23rd. And again, you're playing for all the audio tours, a luggage tag, a button, and a special holiday Mickey Mouse Santa Vinylmation. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Thanks also to my guest and friend, Jim Corkus. I'm going to have links where you can purchase Jim's books on Kindle and in print in this week's show notes over at www.radio.com slash 305. You can also comment there as well. Again, Jim and I will comment back and forth with you. Keep the conversation going from this week's show. While you're on the site, don't forget to check out our daily blog posts from so many great guest authors. We have contests, photos, our fun, free, family-friendly discussion forums, new videos each week, and more. Also, be sure and sign up for our newsletter. It's a free monthly email newsletter that has exclusive content, contests, offers, deals, information, updates, and opportunities. You can visit wdwradio.com news or click the link at the top of the page. And I'd love to hear back from you as well. So if you have a question or a comment, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the voicemail. Be heard on the air, 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. With a question, a comment, you can just say hello from the parks. But as much as I love connecting with you guys on things like Twitter, I'm at Lou Mangiello. And the Facebook page, you can come like us over at facebook.com slash wdwradio. I believe that nothing beats a handshake and a hug. We've got lots of events coming up this month and in 2013. Our next meet of the month in Walt Disney World is Saturday, December 22nd at 1 o'clock at the Tomorrowland Terrace in the Magic Kingdom. Sort of come celebrate the holidays with us before the end of the year. Anyone and everyone is invited. Our next meet of the month is going to be January during our annual January meet of the month during Marathon Weekend. That's going to be Saturday, January 12th from 2 to 4 p.m. And we're going to meet in a new location, someplace we've never had a meet of the month before. And that's going to be in Storybook Circus. We're going to be in the seating area up by Pete's Silly Sideshow. This place is to sit. There's food there as well. And because it's at at 2 o'clock, it gives you time to shower, ice up, relax after the half marathon that morning. Good time to get together, meet, and make some new friends as well. Also, there's more events coming up in 2013, including our on-the-road event. That's going to be also in January, Friday, January 4th. I'm going to be out in Las Vegas speaking at the New Media Expo. We're going to have a get-together for a meal or snack over at the Cypress Street Marketplace Food Court at Caesars Palace. You can find information about that, all the meets of the month, our upcoming events in 2013, including Alani, our uh, cruise on the Disney Fantasy in November, uh, events over at the Walt Disney Family Museum, other meets of the month in Walt Disney World, and lots more. All of it is at the events page over at wdwradio.com. Or if you like our page over on Facebook, you can RSVP on each of the individual event pages there as well. 
Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, Mouse Fan Travel. They'll help you get wherever you're going. If you're coming out to Walt Disney World or Disneyland, Adventures by Disney, Alani, the Disney Cruise, they're my official, they're my recommended travel provider. It's who I've used for years, not just because of the discounts, but really because of the service that they give you all at no additional cost to you. They're over at mousefantravel.com. When you're coming down to Walt Disney World, maybe you want something a little larger. Maybe you want an, an up to an eight-bedroom home for the entire family. Bring all your friends down for their own master bedrooms, game rooms, kitchen, pools, and spas. You can check them out over at allstarvacationhomes.com. And if you want some Disney magic delivered right to you, whether it's in print, at your home, or on your iPad. You can also get Celebrations Magazine by visiting celebrationspress.com. You can also visit the show notes this week for a direct link to the iPad version as well. As always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links on Facebook, Pinterest, Google+, your favorite Disney discussion forums. And please come by, rate and review the show and the app over in iTunes as well. And finally, you know, in the wake of so many tragic, sad times recently, close to home and and others elsewhere around the world, I hope that you can turn to our shared love of Disney for a small, bright spot of hope and happiness, which is why I like talking about the things that simply make us happy about a place and this belief that we have in simple family fun that I think we all share. So my sincere thanks to you for letting me have a bright spot by being able to share my passion for Disney with you in this and so many different ways. And I hope that you start turning your own dreams into action because action leads to results and results will lead to you living the life that you dream about. Get out there, be amazing, love others, be kind, have fun. And until next week, see ya. Hey Liz, this is Nicholas from Milwaukee, Wisconsin otherwise known as Mickey Mouse 100 in the box. And I just got back from Disney World. Uh, I went for 10 days, the 27th of November to the 7th of December. And I was there for the 6th of December opening of the new Fantasyland and Test Track. And um, I went on the Little Mermaid ride, and I think that that's more for smaller kids, but I think that anybody that likes the Little Mermaid ride... Uh, of all ages, could go on it at least once. And uh, the new test track, well, I really love the futuristic feeling of it all. And um, I just want to wish you good luck on everything that you're going to do in the future, and you've done an amazing job in everything that you've done so far. And uh, I've been getting your Celebration magazines since 2009, like for three years. They're really good, too. And uh, the audio guides I love also uh thank you for taking this voicemail goodbye you've got a friend in me yeah how you burn the car's all gassed up so let's load up the shuttle and head for the puddle. The Splash Mountain liftoff is A-OK, all systems go, and T-minus. And Vern, since I'm a highly trained Top Gun splash not, I'll do the driving. So why don't you run in the house and get on some of them long pants and some of that musk oil, and you and I will go to Disneyland and find us some action. <laughs>